This is Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories here on our show about everything. Music, business, history, sports. But we especially love sharing stories that help us develop lasting, healthy relationships from the start. And one of our favorite guests is a medical doctor in North Carolina who does much, much more than treat symptoms. Her patients affectionately call her Dr. Rose, and so do we. And we're so glad she's here to share some of her experience. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein has been a pediatrician for 23 years and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for 5,000 children. She's also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills, and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. Dr. Rose, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you. So happy to be here. You bet. And we like to do a story each week, problem on the first segment. When we get to that second segment, solution, talk about this next story with us. Yes, uh, I'm thinking about a young girl um, that had been coming, has been coming to my clinic since she was a very little girl. And now this young lady is 20 years old. Uh, but a few years ago, when she was about 16, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, she developed several medical problems at one time. And I'll explain to you the, the, the whatever reasons, because there were many of them. Uh, you see, she had always been a bit of a, a an anxious Nelly, let's say. And she, she was... Um, sort of torn up in fear about what her future would hold and, and what would happen if she didn't get all A's or what would happen if anything would happen to her family. And Monica was just, has been just the sweetest girl, always thinking about others, not doesn't think a lot about herself, but wants to be the perfect child and, and the perfect student. Uh, and then something horrible happened. Her sister uh, was dating a guy, and the sister got pregnant uh, with this guy. But what happens that the guy was not such a swell guy, and the guy stuck around the house and made advances to Monica. But Monica didn't want to tell anybody because she knew that her sister was already pregnant, and here's this guy making advances to her. So she was afraid that she would unglue her family. Her worst fears right here had occurred. And she developed the worst headaches, the worst abdominal pain, and she was not able to sleep at night under the huge burden of, should I tell my family about what happened to me, what I know about this guy, or should I not? And we didn't know that this was at the center of this girl's medical problem, and it was indeed causing medical problems. She, she had developed migraines, which were a family history of something that she had, uh, but they also induced uh, some uh, reflux and also uh, gastritis problems that would not go away. She was therefore uh, referred over to a, a psychiatrist and also to a neurologist and a gastroenterologist who all put her on a different set of medications. But no matter what we would do, Monica would not feel any better. And she was up at night, and she was getting more and more nervous because here, here she is in her junior year, 
and she's getting close to the time to graduate, and she had her hopes and dreams, and she's seeing them crash to the floor. And meanwhile, her first little lovely niece uh, has just been born, and she still doesn't know whether to tell anybody. So you can see where this girl had an incredible dilemma, and she hid it all because she just didn't know which was the right decision for her to make. But at the same time, she's, she's having these horrible health issues that just were crippling her and now not allowing her to go to school. And this is the power of stress, too. I mean, stress can really brutalize the body, can it? Oh, absolutely. I have no doubt uh, that Miss Monica was obviously feeling this pain, feel, having gastritis, having the headaches, and truly not able, because of all of these things, not able to sleep at night. And poor Monica had lost somewhere between 10 and 20 pounds uh, at any given moment, and she was unable to eat but bites at a time for days. And a mom watching this really has no idea what's going on, right? we got about a minute here, Dr. Rose, and then we're going to get on the other side of this, oh, and we're going to get the solution. But what about the mom? What is she thinking right now? That is a great point, because I've known this mom uh, since uh, we were both pretty, you know, reasonably young. Uh, and her mom just couldn't understand why a young girl, and if, if you see Monica, she is beautiful. She is so lovely inside and out. Beautiful long hair, the, the most beautiful big brown eyes, and just such, such a beauty to behold. And mom is seeing her, uh, her, her promise for her future, uh, for this girl's future just fade away. And, and she said, well, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? Why won't you tell us? And that's when she opened up. And the mom at this point obviously has to just, I guess, listen carefully. And there are a lot of kids in this country who are holding things back. You don't know what happened to them in school. You don't know what trauma they suffered. I have a wife who was sexually abused when she was 13, 14, 15. Didn't tell anybody. I mean, didn't tell anybody till she told me before she got married. Only recently told her mom because you didn't want her mom to be mad at her. And she didn't want her mom to think that she was mad at her mom. And then you bury these things, you repress these things, and my goodness, the price and the cost. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to Dr. Rose, and we're talking about young, beautiful Monica and her problems and her her strain and stress over burying a secret and what to do about it. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happened to Monica after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with Dr. Rose. And when we left off, well, Monica had come clean. Talk about that moment and what the mom thought, because my goodness, this had to be such a relief for her, but yet at the, at the same time, what a tragedy for a kid to have to even experience something this awful at such a tender age. Oh, yes, and, and when, when I, I say advances from uh, the, the uh, sister's uh, boyfriend, uh, I mean pretty, pretty strong, pretty unwanted advances. Yep. And at first she didn't want to share it right in front of her mom. She said, I'm willing to tell my mom. But I want to tell you first because I'm afraid that I'm going to break down. This is this is the the beauty of of this girl. I'm going to break down in front of her. I'm going to start crying, and I don't want my mom to know how much I uh, I have been upset over this. And so I stayed with her and held her hand while she told me the story. And of course, I couldn't help but have a mom's heart and cry at the same time with her. Uh, and I realized she's been holding this in for about two years because the little girl is was the the niece is now about two years old. And I said, "Oh my goodness, no wonder!" And now uh, Miss Monica is a senior, and she's about to finish high school. But she's missed so many days of school that she was about to be left back in high school, even though she had a perfect GPA. And this is where I looked over at Monica and I said, you know what, it's time. It is time to let go of all of our fears. It is time to let mom know what happened. She will not blame you. It is time to think, to not think that you have to be perfect and that if whatever happens at school and they don't allow you to graduate, it'll be okay. You just have to take more credits. It will be okay. We have to stop living under the shackle of these fears. Miss Monica, are you ready? When we go out that door and we go get your mom and we sit down and we tell her what's happened and that you will face up to what your life really is right now, we have to be ready. Are you ready? And she looked at me and she said, yes. I said, well, that I'm ready is not going to uh, do get the job done. So, Monica, are you ready and finally she looked at me, and she looked in my eyes, and she said, I am ready, Dr. Rose. I said, let's go get your mom now. So we went and got the mom, and I said, so Miss Monica has something to tell you. And uh, I'm here to help her tell you the story if it becomes too difficult, but she wants to tell you something that happened. And she started telling the story. And she got a little stronger she was telling it. And she said, and I wish that somebody would have been there. And I wish that somebody would have helped me at that moment. And I wish that I wouldn't have been the one to know all of these things. And he's still around the house sometimes. And I'm afraid of him, but I'm afraid of letting my, my, niece's, my niece's dad go and being the one to ruin the family because of what I know. And Mom started crying. And I wanted to cry. And I looked over at Miss Monica, and Monica said, but, but we're going to be okay, right? And Mom looked up, and she said, of course, we're going to be okay. This is nothing compared to my thinking that I had lost my daughter. And I had fears that he was not a, such a good guy anyway. And we're just going to go on and live our lives, and we're going to be the strong people that we know how to be. I didn't, be, I didn't grow you up 
to be to be anxious and fearful of everything. I grew you up to be a strong woman. And at that moment, it was like, okay, she was determined. And I'd like to say that it was an easy path from then, but she had had all of these, um, let's say, all these shackles, all these ropes tied around her for so long that it took her body a good year to to reacclimate to what it is really like to live and to sleep and to be able to eat and not to be anxious all the time anymore. So after the, these sessions where she would come in every week, every other week, within probably six months, she started to come off of all of those medications, the two and three sleep agents, uh, the the medication for her, the medications for her stomach, the the anti uh, anxiety medication that she was on, and to this day, Miss Monica is now in her second year of college. She aspires to be an accountant. She is as beautiful and as lovely, but now vibrant, and she could actually understand that she has a hope and a future, and Mom is finally smiling because she knows that what she brought this girl up for, for a a beautiful uh, future that God has given her, that is still in that future for her. And what happened to this guy? I know the audience is just wondering, what happened to him? Um, well, Mom and Dad, once they realized what had happened, uh, called the police. And even though it had been some, some time in the back, uh, you know, it, 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 some time ago, uh, they did do an investigation. They put a, a, uh, I, guess a re- I guess, a restraining order on him. Uh, and so he did, not, he, he did not want to be around that family. He abandoned uh, the, the sister, uh, who was also a patient of mine, by the way, and... and uh, he's no longer in the picture, but the family is together. They're stronger. And the little girl, who's now four years old, is mm. the loveliest, wonderful thing. And you can tell where the anxiety around her birth and the first two years of, of life left a bit of a mark on her because she is also very prone to anxiety. But now her mom understands that, that you cannot grow up a child in the bonds of fear and that you must break them, especially early, so that she can go and live her life. You know, tell me, Dr. Rose, the one thing I'm also thinking about, fear had something to do with Monica and what she was doing, but I also know people, and it's just uh, it's my oldest brother, and he was always carrying the burden for us, and so he didn't want any harm to come to us, and he would suck it up. And I also think it sounds like Monica didn't want her mom to carry the burden. Mom didn't want her sister to carry the burden. Oh, and her, her little niece, what if she found out? So she was, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, jumping on that grenade for them. So not only is she a nervous type, but she may have that type of personality that wants to bear the burden and responsibility for the family. Yes, and that is very dangerous because you're not doing anybody any good. You're just postponing the inevitable. And many times, uh, like you said, I mean, they, they, they had a true, uh, like an action or something that had happened in their past that led them to have this fear. But sometimes we're just fearful of anything that could happen in the future. And so that we're constantly protecting others 
uh, from bearing their own, uh, you know, part of the responsibility of things. Neither one of those two things has good outcomes. And what you do is you raise up a, fe- a spirit of fear in, in in the environment around you. And so what I say to, to uh, those young people or even the parents who are doing that is that it, it's not a thing of overtelling the story, but you sort of have to break the bond. And that bond of fear is one that will make you sick. It'll make you sick inside and out. And you have to be very prayerful about how you tell the story and how you you uh, try to uh, make sure that, that, you know, that bond is broken. But at the same time, it, at some point, you're right, it, it has to be broken. And yes. other people can bear it. And for you to hide it, just because you don't think that other people can bear it, is not, it, it, it's not healthy for yourself. And it's sort of discounting the, the ability that others that are around you have. And as parents, we've always got to be able to keep that line of communication open uh, so someone can share something like with us, Dr. Rose. you got about 30 seconds. Talk about that. Yes, that, that is so true. And, and that's a line of communication that we have to keep open day by day. Don't expect that your child gets home and you haven't really talked to them. You haven't truly been... Uh, had an honest communication with them and haven't shared breakfast and lunch uh, and, or dinners with them, and all of a sudden they come in and they look like they're all upset or maybe you think they are doing drugs and that you're just going to open that up. That will take time. But the best thing to do is to make sure that you're proactive about that relationship. Eat breakfast and, and, and dinners with your child. Have an open relationship. Have it so that your child knows that you're the, the, the alpha and the omega, in a sense, on this earth uh, for, for your child to come and speak to and be able to clear the air with. And that's the way that you make sure that, that uh, you do preventive medicine when it comes to your emotional child upbringing. Well, so well said. And Dr. Rose, thanks so much for all you do. And we'll look forward to more stories from you in the near future. Well, I look forward to sharing them with you. You bet. Thank you so much. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein, as always, great stories about how to be a mom and, most important, how to raise sturdy kids. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. our American stories, and we're fortunate again to be joined by Pastor Corey Brooks, the founder of Project Hood, helping others obtain destiny, and the pastor of New Beginnings Church in Chicago's South Side. His church is on a street named after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but that street is now equally associated with drugs, violence, and prostitution, as with the great Dr. King's vision. The last time we talked with Corey about this South Side of Chicago neighborhood, and his efforts to bring it a new beginning. And so you'll be surprised that today we'll be talking about Chicago's north side with Corey. A north side it is that is that many times more safe and prosperous. And Corey, thanks so much for joining us. 
Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, having me on your show again. Oh, you bet. And, Corey, why are you a South Sider bringing attention to something that happened in the North Side and the North Side High School of New Trier, one of the nation's top public schools where people like Donald Rumsfeld and Rahm Emanuel graduated and sadly, sadly was, the, was the inspiration of the movie Mean Girls. Right. Well, one of the reasons why uh, I started going up north is that uh, I was invited by some parents because they were very concerned about a seminar day that they were having for uh, the kids of New Trier High School. And that seminar day, they were saying that um, they were going to have these presenters and that all of these presenters that they were having uh, were, uh, you know, far left or liberal thinking. And a lot of the parents, they were not opposed to the seminar day, but what they were opposed to is that uh, having that one perspective, that one way of thinking. And so they invited me up to, to, to present the options, the alternatives, uh, to let people know that African-Americans don't all think one way. And since uh, the beginning of uh, time in America that we've been here, we've always had people who have thought differently. And so that's what I was trying to communicate up north and and to give them that perspective. And talk about some of the things that were being taught uh, over there that day and what what bugged some parents and you about the nature of of that teaching. Well, it was a, a civil rights discussion based upon race. And that alone um, is, is troubling because we're living in a day and a time where race is not what I believe is ought to be put in the forefront. Uh, I believe that what we're dealing with is economic impoverishment. We're dealing with uh, no longer are we um, in a position where we got to keep constantly airing our grievances to the public in order to make people feel guilty and to make them feel bad about us being black and them being white. However, we're in a day and a time where there are people who, whether they live in the Appalachians or whether they're in West Virginia or whether they're in inner cities of America, that are all experiencing uh, being impoverished. And the same traits, regardless uh, of where you are, uh, are seem to be perpetuated. Um, crime uh, against one another, um, bad schools, uh, inadequate uh, opportunities. Those are the things that, that we wanted to see talked about, not just black, white, race issues across the board and making people feel as if uh, that's the only thing that blacks are concerned about when it comes to civil rights. You know, it's interesting, Pastor, we're going through the same thing right here in our little hometown. It's a it's a it's a racially uh, it's a racially integrated town. There is some wealth. There is some poverty. Um, but the poor the poor folks in the town who are disadvantaged are, are plenty of white kids, plenty of black kids and some very well to do African-American families and some well to do white families. I'm an Arab American. I don't know where I fit in. Um, and, and yet all that's coming into the schools through a, an institute here at the college is it's all about wealth redistribution as if poverty and race as if poverty isn't something my wife who grew up in a trailer to a single mom while I right. grew up Arab. She was white. She's white. I grew up with poor Arab immigrant parents and Italian parents, but I grew up with an intact family and pastor. If we know one thing in this country, that the thing that eliminates almost all poverty gaps is a mother and a father and then children. Why is nobody talking about this? Yeah, you know, I think um, the family the family dynamic is very important. And if you take away that aspect of American life, you are going to have some consistent problems. And one of the things that 
uh, we do see, and you're correct, uh, from impoverished families is that there is the absence of two-parent households. And so we definitely do understand that having two-parent household adds to uh, the economy, adds to the economy of that family, and it adds to the perspective of that family. So you, you're definitely right that not only should we be talking about economic injustice, but at the same time we've had a major social issue uh, with single-parent households, especially in African-American context. You're talking about uh, 65% or almost 70% of African-American households are single-parent households, and that is a major problem that drives a lot of economic depravity that we see. You know, and a lot of people will say, well, folks folks are poor, so they can't get married, and yet marriage rates in this country, white and black families, were very high during the, they were very high during the Great Depression, because, well, single-parent families weren't normalized. It wasn't, and the government wasn't coming in and interfering with the social function and social norms, and so I actually believe, Pastor, that Poverty is caused by lack of marriage, and marriage isn't. The marriage rates aren't caused by poverty, and I think it's a discussion. Imagine this: imagine if every kid knew and was told every day that if you will get married and then have kids, you have a five percent chance of being of staying poor in this country, and your kids have a much greater chance of not going to prison, not being drug addicts, not being sexually abused. I just don't think we don't do enough and don't spend enough time. I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, but even in the secular world, we just don't spend enough time evangelizing and, and, and talking and, and tending to that message. Yeah, and I, you're exactly right. You know, the Bible promotes family, and I think the, the lack of a family structure and, and families being promoted and families being uh, publicized and talked about as the strength of America is is a, is a is a big weakness, and as a result, uh, we keep having uh, breakdown of family structures regardless of color, and as a result, uh, in those areas where you have the breakdown of family structures, you have all kinds of problems. And I think you're right; we do have to do a better job at promoting family and promoting marriage and promoting uh, the unity of family, because uh, that's definitely biblical, and it definitely would help society in so many ways. No doubt, and this affects every family. I mean, the, the white uh, teenage out of wedlock rate is, is starting to creep into the mid-30s, and the whole country's now at 40%. Uh, this is, when it hits 50%, Pastor, for all of us, every group, yeah. oh my goodness, I don't know how the government solves that problem, but let's go back to Nutrier High School. The reason I was bringing up family is because you rarely hear the left, especially the far left, and this is not a political show, but I think everyone in our audience knows what we're talking about. What are they talking about in this in this discussion? Talk about the kinds of things they're talking about at this Nutrier High School. Because by the way, folks, this is coming to a K-12 school district near you, this kind of material. Right. Well, if you could think of every leftist thought uh, as far as social uh, uh, solving social issues from a leftist point of view, those are the things that's being discussed. I don't think there's anything being left out. Uh, I think uh, what they're trying to do is uh, promote an agenda uh, without saying it. Uh, but it's obvious from the people that they chose uh, to be speakers, uh, because whether you read their writings or hear their speeches, uh, they're all socially left, far left. And, and that's the type of information that they were trying to 
um, give to these young people. Uh, one of the things that they were saying at the board meeting is that they wanted these kids to grow up to be critical thinkers. And I find it very damaging that you want the kids to be critical thinkers, but you want to only give them one perspective. And it always amazes me on when the left says that you ought to be open-minded and you ought to have your heart open. But yet when it comes to being conservative and it comes to promoting conservative thoughts, uh, they become very closed-minded and closed-heart all of a sudden. And that's the type of attitude and behaviors that uh, I witnessed personally at at New Trier uh, while at their board meeting. Well, hold on and hold on to those thoughts, too, Pastor. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of those specific examples. And we're going to talk about the rich tradition of of what what I would consider a more conservative mindset and thought inside the African-American community. Certainly, it's inside my Lebanese community. There was a split, and there was a lengthy debate inside our community about which way to go, more government help or more personal empowerment. And I can tell you who won in the Lebanese community. The personal empowerment side won. When we come back, more with Pastor Corey Brooks of New Beginnings Church in Chicago's South Side, talking about, of all things, an upper-crust, upper-class school district in the north side of Chicago. This is Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Pastor Corey Brooks of New Beginnings Church in Chicago's South Side. And by the way, folks, we love to talk about all things in America and about all people in America. And we have a heart particularly for our rural areas in this country, particularly the poor white areas, the Appalachian areas. And we're going to be sending correspondents there. And we like to talk about what's happening in the heart of our nation's inner cities. Because I think what's happening to both places is really the same now when we're finding that race is sort of indistinguishable now from the real problems, which is economic dislocation, poverty, and family and to, to join us again, Pastor Corey Brooks, thanks again for joining us, Pastor. Thank you, as you, always. You bet. And I wanted to talk about some of these uh, ideas. Uh, microaggressions, voices from literature was being taught at this school, Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter, uh, Take a Knee, Colin Kaepernick's Activism and Symbols of America, and my favorite, White Privilege in College Admissions. Uh, just talk about some of these, and and, and how do these help? any of us understand what's going on as it relates to race and class in the United States? Right. So, again, even with those subjects, you have individuals who are focusing totally on race, and their goal is to continue to bring their our grievances before people so that, number one, they get paid from it. Number two, they keep jobs doing it. And I think people need to know that there are people who make a living Uh, promoting racial issues, racial problems all the time, and neglecting to trying to get us to come together as Americans and neglecting the fact that the real issue, I believe, is an economic issue. It's a poverty issue. And so those individuals are going to constantly keep uh, promoting their messaging, but we have to do a better job at making sure that we let people know, hey, listen, everybody does not think like this, and we need to start Uh, promoting our message and letting people hear our voice be loud and be spoken. So that's one of the reasons why I went out to Nutria, because I wanted them to know 
there is a different perspective. There is a different thought. There are people who think just like Booker T. Washington, and there are people in our culture who want that to be expressed, and so that's what I was trying to do. Talk about the difference. There was a great debate happening in the early 20th century in black America. And by the way, I, the same debate was occurring between Jews around the world. There were some Jews who thought that Russia was the way and that communism was the way. And there were some Jews that thought that capitalism was the way. And my goodness, we know how that ended out for the Jews who thought communism was the way. And in the early 20th century, we had Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. And they had a very different view of America and where it should head and what it should do about the black victims of racism, slavery, and segregation. Talk about that that struggle and that dialogue. Well, that that struggle right there is a great example. Um, the struggle between W.E.B. Du Bois and, and Booker T. Washington, the, the trying to um, both express their points of view as it relates to what African-Americans, what the agenda should be for our people. One believed uh, that uh, in, in, in more government and more assistance, more help, more um, dependence. The other believed more in self-reliance uh, and in uh, entrepreneurship and businesses and focusing on uh, money reinvested in the black community by black hands. And so that, that train of thought um, unfortunately, I believe, has not won out, and that's the reason why we're in the situation that we're in. Uh, we, we've created a culture where we have not been as self-reliant, and we have not um, built our communities up the way that we should, and we have not um, focused on making sure that our dollars uh, turn over in our community so that we can help ourselves. So what has happened is that uh, I believe that we've become more dependent on others outside to come in and save us, and that is just not happening. And that, to me, is the same uh, social liberal train of thought that wants us to believe that we have to wait on the government and that the government somehow can come in and save us and fix things for us and that we have to have them involved in our lives. And that therein lies the issue and the problem. I think that's so true, and it, and it becomes almost a mindset. I mean, in the end, poverty is a mindset, and I think this is how we know it. I mean, you're looking, Pastor, at first-generation Ethiopians, folks from Trinidad. When you look at the migrant Africans coming here, and they're coming here with a dollar in their pockets, a dollar in their pockets. And when you look at per capita income and how those folks are doing in this country, right. it's surreal. And by the way, you dare to bring that up in any discussion about race, and you just start getting called names. Hey, absolutely. And, and But it's a valid point that those individuals uh, basically have come here with little or nothing, and they have built up a, a train of thought that says, look, we must reinvest in ourselves. We must connect with one another. We must start businesses. We must not wait on others to come in and save us, and we must get involved in free markets, and we've got to get involved in the economy. And when that happens and those opportunities present themselves, then their culture becomes stronger and stronger. And so I applaud them for what they're doing, and now I just hope and pray uh, that we can have that same type of thing happening in the African-American context, because if we don't, we're going to continue to see failing schools. We're going to continue to see uh, environments where there's a high level of crime. We're going to continue to see the breakdown of family structures, and that's going to be very persistent across the country in major urban areas, and that's what we need to change. I'm going to read just a bit from a column you wrote uh, in the Chicago Tribune, because, you know, you were, you were, your point was 
you would have loved to have seen different types of people there. And here's what you said. There are a great number of black Chicago businessmen who have built multi-million dollar businesses who advocate for development in blighted areas and are against mandates and government programs. None of these voices were represented on the seminar day lineup. And I have to just a brief story about me, Pastor. You know, I'm, I'm a Lebanese kid. I came here the only Arab, forget in the t- county, I was the only Arab kid I ever met in New Jersey. And I heard it all. Right. And when I would come home, my parents would say, get a helmet. For every one person who doesn't like you because of who you are, there are 100 who don't care. You can either pay attention to those idiots or you can go on with the rest of your life. And they just were not going to let me be the victim. They had no sympathy for it. They had no tolerance for it. They always thought I was trying to make a mistake, make an excuse to not do my homework or not do something else. And they were just tough. And I've got to tell you, I ended up being friends with a lot of people who were calling me names. I ended up becoming best friends with them. They just had never met an Arab before. So I think this is the point. They're a racist. And no question there's racism in America. The question is, what's the proper response? Absolutely, and, and I think that was the great advice that could be given to you. You can either focus on those few individuals who act in ignorance, or you can focus on the individuals who are uh, who don't who are not looking at race every single day, and that they want to make life better for everyone and give people opportunities. And so, I'm, I, I believe that the solution is we have to do a better job at communicating that we want to help impoverished areas. We have to do a better job at communicating that everybody deserves an opportunity, regardless if they're black or white or whatever, uh, whether they live in the Appalachians or whether they live in the, uh, on the south side of Chicago. They need op- op- uh, options and opportunity, and we have to provide them uh, alternatives to live. And we just cannot, we cannot afford to continue to let people um, just give us this one-sided, lopsided, way of thinking and, and believe that that's going to fix it because it's not. And we know the power of, of vouchers in schools and the ability of a student to move from school to school and choose their schools. And right. no, no middle-class parent in this country or wealthy parent doesn't not choose their schools. They all choose their schools. But I, I, I've been hearing more and more talk, Pastor, about the idea of housing vouchers too. Because imagine this, if you got to take that HUD, that money that was spent for that that HUD house, and you got to go where you wanted with that, you could actually pick your school with that too. And I have a feeling there's going to be a lot more discussion about where and how government can incent people to make their own choices so they're no longer dependent on government. I think that's something a lot of Americans would rally around, giving people vouchers and choices. Right. You know, one of the things that people don't realize is that uh, Martin Luther King was, was really moving and had a lot of momentum until he started talking about poverty. And when he started talking about poverty and helping impoverished people, that whole movement, a lot of people turned on him, especially uh, leftist liberal individuals. And one of the things that you just mentioned, I believe, well, two of the things that you just mentioned, I believe would help impoverished people a lot, regardless of what color they are. Providing HUD certificates for people to live wherever they want to live who are instead of subject, subjecting them to housing areas and housing developments, but allowing them to take that help, that assistance, and move wherever, I think that is a, a, a great option. And I definitely believe in educational, um, uh, giving them the vouchers to take their child anywhere. 
it's 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 horrible that impoverished people have to continue to have their children regulated to some of the worst schools because of where they lived in these impoverished areas. But if we allow people to take their tax dollars, their monies, and have their child go to the school that would better them and that would help them, you would quickly see people, uh, a lot of people being moved out of poverty. Uh, but it's 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 sad that unfortunately you have a lot of people who think very differently, and because of that, we we're, we're in the situation that we're in. Well, we're going to be having uh, Alex, who's a Chicago boy. And next time he visits home, Pastor, we're going to go and visit. We'd like to follow some of the a couple of young people who you a couple of young people who are resisting the bad choices and trying to make the right choices. We'd love to follow their lives down the line for a year or so. And hopefully we can get that done. And thanks so much, as always, for joining us. All right. Thank you. I greatly appreciate it. And as always, thanks for having me on your show. You bet. This is Lee Habib, Pastor Corey Brooks of New Beginnings Church in Chicago's South Side. And he was dealing with some rather interesting ideas being pushed and promoted in one of the more Tony Northside Chicago schools about race and class. Again, this is Our American Stories. our American stories, and our late friend Terry Kohler told us about a story that we just had to bring to you, blind sailing races. You heard that right, sailing match races by folks who were blind. And one of those blind sailors, Walt Ranieri, joins us now along with the Sailing Education Association of Sheboygan's director, Rich Reichelsdorfer, and thank you both for joining us. Great to be here, Lee. You bet. And let's start with you, Walt. Uh, Talk to uh, our audience a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, and when you learned you were going blind. Talk about those circumstances, if you could, for our audience. So coming from a family of six kids, four boys, two girls in Santa Clara, California, back when it was not known as Silicon Valley, where we mostly grew apricots and plums and things like that. I grew up with an interesting guillotine hanging over my head, uh, a retinal degenerative disease known as retinitis pigmentosa. Caused two of my uncles to go blind, although when they went blind, they weren't even sure why. And then one by one, uh, each of my three brothers went blind, leaving me kind of standing alone. And then finally, 12 years ago, uh, at the age of 45, the guillotine fell and I lost about 95% of my vision in a quick five months, very tough summer that was, and it has been spiraling down ever since. And, and tell me, you know, what, what was that like, knowing that all that time? I mean, did you know your time was uh, running out the whole time? You said it was a guillotine. Uh, describe that to the audience. You know, so how, how do you deal with 
with the following. Someone walks up to you and says, your, your right arm is going to fall off. We don't know exactly when, but, but we're pretty sure your right arm is just going to fall off. Uh, it may happen slowly. It may happen quickly. With that information, uh, at a young age, you don't do anything. You, you go outside and play. So I, uh, I guess it was known within the family, this is an X-linked version of this disease. The men get it and the women carry it. I knew you know, early on that, that uh, someday I might go blind, although when, where, and, and if were all still questions to be answered. Uh, those answers, that question was answered uh, 12 years ago, and, and uh, I often get the question, did you live your life with this guillotine hanging over your head in a way that would be different if you didn't have it? And, and the answer is, well, you know, probably sure. Uh, I, I, I've been known as the, the hyperactive overachiever type, and maybe that was as a result of knowing that, that I wouldn't have sight all my life. But to be honest, you don't think about it every day. It's like breathing. You don't think about about breathing, you just do it. You don't right. think about seeing, you just see. And at some point, if it goes away, you know, there's a period of adjustment. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was quite traumatic when it first happened. And, and when, when you were adapting, I, I could only assume that the setbacks there, what kept you going during that interim stage of seeing and then not seeing? I mean, it's, it, it's something we talk about in the show a lot is, you know, sometimes it's a divorce and suddenly you wake up, there's no husband, or there's a, a death in the family. And in a sense, this was a death of something, right? I mean, it was a death of your sight. Yeah, I, a, lot of people, a lot of people try closing their eyes, and they instantly experience the anxiety and the fear that's associated with losing something quickly. And, and yes, uh, that same anxiety, that same, that same fear, that same frustration hit me pretty hard. You do have to adapt. You, you, you have to keep moving. I mean, I, I read a very interesting book written by somebody. Uh, the book was called My Eyes Have a Cold Nose, written way back in 1947. A guy lost his retinas due to a detached retina back when they really couldn't do a whole lot of back then. And, and, and he wrote a very interesting uh, chapter of his book about adaptation and about how do you avoid learning to become helpless. There's a phenomenon in, in, in our society, where if you receive too much help too early during an adaptation period, you can learn to become helpless, and that is not a good thing. So, so I, I struggled with that. I, I tried to continue doing things, and it all came to a head one day. I'm crossing the street, doing everything my mobility instructor told me to do with my cane, and I hit a rock that had fallen off a construction truck. And there was nothing I could do. I, I mean, I did everything right, but I, there I was laying face down on the pavement, waiting to be run over by a car, thinking to myself, is this the rest of my life? Is this all that I have to look forward to? And uh, that little spike of depression uh, was a very telling moment, a very pivotal moment in my life, the tipping point where a little voice in my head said, no, get up, keep moving. Because if we don't keep moving, you know, life's really not worth living. And it was really at that point that I decided to stop being a poorly functioning sighted person and start being a highly functioning blind person. And that was, the, that was actually that, not aha moment, but that was that 
that catalyst, I would assume, and that was just that turning point, I would say. Yeah, it, I mean, it was everything got a little easier at that point when, mm-hmm. it, you know, trying to, to, to figure out, you know, if the milk was, was good to drink from the refrigerator uh, by, by, by doing what? By, by putting some sort of notch on it or something? I luckily went blind right at a time when a wave of technological innovation was crashing all around our society and around the world. And now I, I just take my smartphone device, I scan the milk, and it tells me what it is and when I bought it. I, I, I scan lots of things in my house using the same form of technology, and rather than, than, than struggling, it's actually easier. Well, I mean, well, I actually hold that thought if you could. We're coming up on a break. We're going to talk a little bit more about your transition to, well, not being able to see and moving forward, and then right to, well, blind sailing, because that's why we're here. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. When we come back, more on this remarkable story. We'll be back right after these few messages. American Stories, and we're talking to Walt Rainieri, and we'll soon be talking to Rich Reichelsdorfer, and Rich is the director of the Sailing Education Association of Sheboygan, and they host the Blind Match Racing World Championships, but we're talking to Walt, and Walt, let's continue where we left off, and during the break, you you said something pretty interesting that I thought our audience would want to hear about. But first, let's just dig into that, that spot we had left off at, which was that, that transition. Uh, just a couple of more points to our folks about, you know, those, those days. Obviously, the technology is really helping you. What about family and friends? Uh, how were they and how important was that? Family and friends were, were huge. First, uh, I have three blind brothers who, of course, had gone through the process and, and, and were there in spirit and and otherwise to, to 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 help but what i found most important what i found that was critically important in my adaptation to learn how to become a, a highly functioning blind person was to hang with people who absolutely prevented me from learning to become helpless i had some really good friends who would not give me any special treatment they, they, they said, uh, you want to do this? Do this. You know, follow me here. Uh, you know, providing the appropriate amount of assistance is, appro- is correct, but, but don't drag me anywhere. Don't, don't do everything for me. Don't, don't cut my food for me. And I think that was the part that I really helped from, from climbing um, uh, Mount Mansfield in Vermont in the middle of the night with, with a dear friend of mine who said, nothing about how difficult it might be for me, just said, let's do it. And we did it, and that's the beginning of, of 
a, a lifetime now, well, 12 years of extreme adventures from, from Nordic skiing in, in Sweden to kayak racing to sculling, rowing, bicycle racing in a velodrome, uh, and, and, and most recently with blind sailing and match racing. And had you been up for adventures like this before this, or did this in some way help you to become more adventurous? Well, you know, that hyperactive overachiever in me really likes the idea of pushing the envelope because what I found early on, so there I was, divorced from my sight. And yes, it was pretty darn traumatic. Uh, No matter how many friends you have around, no matter how much family you have around, there are going to be lots of moments when you are by yourself thinking about the rest of your life and what you're going to do about it. And that's, those are the tough moments. Those are the ones that you have to get through. You got to walk through that dark corridor to get into the large room at the end of the hall, because that's where the party's going on. And, you know, for any one of you out there that are thinking that it's too hard, it's too difficult, it's too tough. Well, I'm here to tell you, yeah, it is hard, but it does get easier. And there is a party at the end of that dark corridor. Just keep moving and it's going to be a great time once you get there. Because what I found is that my walls started caving in. And, you know, just sit there, close your eyes, and you're going to feel the walls are going to start caving in the longer you keep your eyes closed. It's almost a form of claustrophobia-like experience. And for me, what I found to be the most effective way of pushing the walls out was, was to figure out how to remain connected with being a human being, and that is moving at the speed of nature, whether it's skiing or running or biking or sailing. Moving at the speed of nature just, just allows me to reconnect as a human being on the planet. And, and when I'm out on the sailboat and I'm cruising around with no one sighted on board at all, navigating around some audible buoys, I am pushing those walls out, and, and that's the part of it that makes it worthwhile. You know, we were talking during the break, and we had, I had mentioned to you that we had done an hour on Al Pacino. And if you remember, Al Pacino won an Oscar for playing a blind man, uh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade. And Pacino was asked by James Lipton on the Bravo channel, what was the hardest part you ever played? And he said, by far, being a blind person and playing a blind person. And he had said that, when you're playing it, you can always open your eyes again. So merely closing your eyes and wondering what it's like can't ever do it because the blind person can't ever open their eyes again. Talk about that, that story you told me back uh, on, the, on the sailboats, uh, and then we'll get into sailing itself, Walt. Yeah, so it's very common for people with whom I hang to, to do the little experiment, to close their eyes, to, to, to try to experience what I experience. And it's not really fair for them because, because they can reopen them. And because they can reopen them, their ability to adapt isn't very instant. And, and many times, including on a sailboat, people who are fully sighted, great sailors, world-class sailors, put on a pair of blindfold goggles, and within 10 minutes, they're sick, they look a little queasy because they, they don't have their eyes to equalize their, their, their inner ear equilibrium. Uh, they lose their balance. They don't know where they are in the water. And the fun part about it is the blind guys on board say, don't worry. I know exactly where I am. Just trim the mane. And, and it's pretty funny because, of course, at that point, they take their blindfold goggles off to recover a little bit. And I can, I, I can only imagine, you know, right now, everyone – 
close your eyes and, and listen to the rest of this, and I think you're going to experience something very, very unique. No, there's no doubt. And, and uh, you know, often uh, when I'm doing the work, I do that anyway. Um, I've been taught at early time, especially in my business, that if you close your eyes, you hear better. Um, and actually, when we did an hour on Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles, both of them had, had talked about how their blindness in some ways served their musical talents. Um, and that one loss became a, a, a gain in another particular aspect and dimension of their life. And so let's talk about blind sailing, and then we're going to bring Rich in as well, and we're doing another segment because we can't help it. Uh, how does this even work, Walt? I mean, how do, you, how, do you, how do you do this? I mean, I can't sail, and I can see. So I have hundreds of people have asked me this question uh, because I first I, I lay out the facts. The facts are... There are three blind people on board, no sighted people, and you are out on the water by yourself navigating around a match racing course. And, and, and of course, invariably, it's how in the world do you do it? And, and, and the answer is simply by listening, by using our auditory sense and feeling the boat, we listen for uniquely sounding buoys that are making unique sounds on the water, and one buoy means we're on the left side of the course. One buoy means we're on the right side of the course, and one buoy means we're, we're upwind or on the, on, on the upwind side of the course. And we have to navigate around all these buoys in a traditional match race format. So there's very little rule change from, from fully sighted match racing mm-hmm. to blind match racing, except for the fact that our buoys make noise, and thank goodness, the umpires call collision every once in a while when the <laughs> boats are about to hit each other. Uh, I have some stories about that. And the idea of being able to feel where the wind is is not unique to being blind or sighted. Every, every good sailor will tell you, close your eyes and find where the wind is, because that's going to be your ability to tactilely sense where it's coming from. And where the wind's coming from, that's the engine on the water. How you trim the sails is all about from the orientation of the boat to the wind, and it is a little scary. It, there is there is a little frustration and anxiety uh, when you're in a match race with another boat with three other blind people coming right at you when the boats could collide, and and yet you, there's no special rules applied. It's to get out of a head-on collision, there are particular tactics we use, and they're the exact same tactics that uh, sighted racers use. And just we have just about a minute left in this segment, but I would only assume that in the same way that we have depth perception when we can see, you can actually hear the spatial relationships between those sounds. Does that, is that what happens uh, when yeah, you're hearing absolutely. those sounds pushed out to your ear? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's as if I'm mapping a three-dimensional a board in my head with the, with the sound when I'm on the water. At, at any given moment, you can ask me, where am I? I'll tell you where I am. And I'm doing so by imagining a giant playing field in my mind, and I'm just putting myself in various spots, given where I'm hearing other things going on. Well, when we come back, we're going to be joined. We've spoken to the, the man who lost his sight and decided to sail and engage in blind match racing world championships. And next, we're going to talk to the man who put that event together, because one sounds crazier than the other. And that's what we love about this show, and we love about America, and we love about the American spirit, and that is one of resilience, of grit, of perseverance, and just not quitting. 
and moving forward, as Walt just told us. Just keep moving forward. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's our American Dreamers segment, and we're spending the hour with Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury dealership chain, and that's a car dealership, car dealerships in the Midwest. And where we left off was uh, talking about fans as opposed to customers, and we spent an hour with the founder of Metro Bank and what was amazing, and Commerce Bank, and what was amazing about his philosophy was that he didn't want customers he wanted fans and he even wrote a book about that talk about your stance on customers versus fans yeah we don't even call we don't even say the word customer because customer implies a transaction and uh what we what we ultimately want to create is a group of friends selling cars to other friends and um and and we look at his clients because we look at a a long relationship with that client not just one car or one service visit and we make our team members realize that their everything that our company does revolves around that client relationship. Well, and in the end, if you do this right, that's a massive unpaid sales force you have if you just take care of your clients. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's dramatically harder to get a client than to keep a client. And uh, so we look at the little things, again, little details. So we have things like, for example, we have a vision statement that our people – uh, carry with them at all times that they need to know. It's, it's very, very important. We have commandments. So, uh, you know, I went to Catholic school and they had the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are very negative. You know, it tells you all the stuff not to do. Right. So we have something called the Ten Commandments of our company that starts with having fun. Because why would you want to come to a company or a job that we're not having fun? So right. having fun is one of our commandments. Thou shalt have fun. <laughs> and, so we, and, and, and all of our team, our, all of our team members know those Ten Commandments and they got to follow them. It's pretty basic stuff. Yeah, pretty basic stuff. And I got to tell you, you're starting with the big one because, folks, you know, when you're having fun, you, having fun ripping people off, isn't, it can't be fun. It no, can't be. No, absolutely. No. And, 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 so, and, that's, and that, wouldn't be, that would be the opposite of the type of people that we want to hire. That's exactly right. And I think the reputation that, 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 that I think and the reason why people didn't want to go to car dealers, and I think you'll appreciate this, I put myself through law school uh, leasing cars and I had just found that, that the way that uh, car leasing companies were working, they were hiding the interest rates. They were calling these things money factors. They were selling the cars up. And all I did was treat the car lease like a sale. I had total transparency. And the next thing I know, I know not only had great cars because I was buying the trades for a fair price, Brian, but I, I had these incredible customers who were coming to me, and then I was just selling the car. I was just handling the transactional side because the financial guys in these dealerships were so, so many of them were ripping people off. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I tell our team all the time, car dealerships didn't get a reputation by accident. Uh, and so that's the good news is that the business that we're in is a low bar that we have to cross. And we just make certain that we blow that bar away. Yeah, and I think, Bernie, that the, 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 the Saturn people were trying to get around that. But yeah. that, that wasn't the answer, was it? No, because Saturn, Saturn, no, Saturn had a lot of great uh, uh, things to it. There's no question about that. I think that where Saturn went wrong is that the, the, they just never, General Motors just never invested uh, money in making the car great. Right. So, so had they made a great car, it would have been great. But, uh, but you know, there, there's there's just so much of what Saturn did that really changed changed the business. It was a long time ago. So it was, and we're we're doing those. We're still putting those things in place in our company. Right. But in the end, if you don't have the cars. Um, all, you know, the fan experience, some of it has to do with the customer contact, but in the end, the product you're selling better be a good product too. Yeah, exactly. Because that, that was the thing. The process was so strong that it carried Saturn for years, but eventually General Motors milked that product and, and killed Saturn by not. Had General Motors invested a, a normal amount of money in product development, Saturn would be the, the biggest car company uh, out there right now today because the process just killed it. Yep. They they did the opposite. They bled they bled they bled the process down to nothing. Yeah, and and again, this is a, this is what can happen with big corporations. Um, they can just they can you know sometimes just miss it. And talk about the products. Um, talk about cars today uh, as opposed to twenty years ago. And talk about some of your favorites. Yeah, well, uh, Mercedes Benz for sure. Uh, you know, I, I got again like I mentioned, my dad loved Mercedes. I love Mercedes. Uh, we have three Mercedes Benz dealerships. It's definitely the uh, you're, not, you're not supposed to have favorites with kids or, or dealerships. <laughs> but in my case, I violate that rule, and Mercedes is for sure um, my favorite car. I would say after that, Porsche. Uh, you know, Porsche just is probably the best engineered vehicles in the world. You can't just can't beat it. Yep. Uh, and uh, that, you know, so those are the cars I drive every day. Uh, we're, we're very. Uh, uh, bullish on Infinity. We think Infinity for, as a as a value luxury brand is a great great brand, and uh, and then Buick and GMC. I mean, I think from from General Motors um, after the bankruptcy, they, those are the two strongest brands. I think that that General Motors has is Buick and GMC. So we're very bullish about that brand as well. Well, that's fantastic. And you know, and going back to that culture we were talking about, um, you you give away your cell phone number to your to your clients. I, I would I would guess that not many uh, heads of dealerships do that. So why do you do that? Well, you can't. This is this is I think the biggest issue that that companies have. Every company, literally every company, talks about great customer service. Everybody does, but there's a hypocrisy because they don't deliver great. Customer. Every company doesn't deliver great customer service. Yep. And the leaders of those companies are the ones that preach one thing and do another. So, for example. If I say that our clients are the most important thing, well, then why wouldn't I give them my cell phone number? Right. They're more important than I am, aren't they? Yep. So if the client wants to get a hold of me and email me or send me or call me, i got to make that easy because otherwise my team will say, well, obviously, you're better than they are. And the answer is I'm not. I'm, uh, you know, service means to serve. So I'm here to serve our clients just like our team members are. And, you know, what's interesting also is maybe you're creating the culture that says, if I can just get high enough up the ranks – I don't have to deal with those pesky customers either. Right, exactly, exactly. So what does that say to people? Yeah, it's, it's really terrible. You know, we had the, the, the head of, ta- of human talent, and they don't call it human resources at Chick-fil-A, 
But uh, Deanna, I'm, I'm not recalling her last name, but Deanna is her first name. Terrific lady. And she was talking about at Chick-fil-A how whenever they have to fire someone in the end, and they don't do it often, they really blame themselves because it meant that they hadn't hired right. When you go out to hire folks, what are you thinking about? What are you looking for? And for all the parents out there that are listening, you're listening to to now to a guy who actually hires. What are you looking for? Personality. You can't. You can't train. You can't train personality. You can't train morals. You can't train train work ethic, and you can't train honesty. That's absolutely the most important thing uh, that you got. And then from there, the rest is just. You know, some teaching and some learning, um, but if you don't have those core values, how do you ferret them out? How do you how do you know what's what? How do you know a person has honesty? How do you figure that one out? Uh, you look at their track record. I think you 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 know good interviews, good background checks, good uh, uh, ability to really get get into their into their history a little bit. But you can see it in their personality. You know, if somebody's attracted to my company in sales, for example because they want to make a killing selling uh, in terms of money with individual car transactions, that's not for me. Yep. Because, because I'm more interested in somebody who says to me, hey, listen, I, I want to make a little bit less money than normal on sales of cars, but make it up over the period of 10, 15, 20 years of that client. That's much more appealing. So you get a sense of what they're all about that way. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, if somebody wants to dig in with you for 10 or 15 years because they want the repeat business, they're telling you they don't want to work 70 hours a week for three years and burn out. They want to right. work 45 hours a week, but with integrity and stay in for a long time and meet their clients at the Little League field and not hide under a rock and not hide under a rock. When we come back, we're going to dig a little into public policy. We're going to talk a little about the obstacles that business folks face uh, more in our American Dreamers series. And for the hour, we have Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest. And he started it from scratch, digging into his own pocket and risking everything he had with one dealership. And now, well, my goodness, a nice little empire. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we've been spending the hour in a delightful way. We love talking to American dreamers, because my goodness, if you're listening to this, it just lifts the spirits. I mean, imagine uh, working for someone who has the Ten Commandments, and the most important commandment is, thou shalt have fun. And by the way, this is the spirit of American business in the end. It's almost every entrepreneur I've ever met. You know, you're not going to get anywhere without a happy workforce and a workforce that really likes coming to work. What a crazy idea. And, Bernie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Hey, one more cultural point before we then dig into the uh, public policy space. You know, I, I, I co-write columns with a guy named Mike Levin who's grown some very big businesses. And what he's always worried about is too much senior management. 
and too much distance between him and the people on the, on, the, on the ground. And that in the end, too many vice presidents can really mess up an operation. And, and talk about that as you grow, um, what you worry about and what the hardest fights are internally. Forget what, what the government's doing. We're going to get to that next. But internally, and not your comp- competition, just inside your own culture, how do you keep what you have? That is, a, that is a remarkably important point, and I made that mistake. I, I created a structure where I had uh, layers, extra layers in there with vice presidents and a chief operating officer and all that stuff, and it did separate me from my people, and the company suffered as a result. So subsequently, I've gotten rid of all that structure, and uh, now it's me, general manager, and then the people who work in the store. And that has made a giant difference in the culture because the, cult, the culture dried up the minute I put those layers in place. Yeah. Because t- typically those people don't, or at least in my case, they weren't able to articulate our company culture the same way. And without culture, you're just another company. Yeah, you know, there's this great moment in, uh, in the history of the National Press Club where people had wondered how Bobby Knight had managed all those years. And like Bobby Knight, the coach at Indiana, or don't like him, his boys never got in trouble. They all graduated. And, but one, Isaiah Thomas, who he guilted into coming back and finishing. And so he's at the National Press Club, and he said, how did you do it? Somebody asked him, how did you do it? And he, he's brought with him two props. One is the Manhattan phone book, and he said, these are the NCA rules and regulations. He drops them. There's a thud. Then he reaches into his pocket, and he has the Ten Commandments. He goes, these, these basic rules work pretty well for me. And, yeah, and I think it's that. I think it's that. Um, I, you know, I'm sorry you had to go through the, the land of vice presidents and getting rid of them, but, boy, what an important lesson for even the owner to learn. Yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. Let's talk, absolutely. About, let's talk about the government, and let's talk about, first, uh, things out there that, uh, as an entrepreneur, you wish might be different. If you were getting to talk to the next future president of the United States about what might be impediments to growth, um, what might help you and your workforce as it relates to benefits, what would you tell them? The government needs to stay out of the, the way of job creators. Uh, you know, the, the government should be, you should be looking at, if you run the United States of America as a politician, you should be looking at and saying, how do we support and enhance and make the lives better of people creating jobs, which are business people, and people who work in those companies. How do we make their lives better? Instead, the current debate is all about how do we control, how do we put a barrier, how do we make things more difficult, how do we tax to create a giant centralized behemoth entity, which was never envisioned by our founding fathers. The fact that there's a million people that work in the executive branch, I think our, our founding fathers are rolling over in our graves. Well, and imagine what we just learned from you, because I think this applies to public and private sector. The bigger stuff gets and the more vice presidents and the more bureaucrats there are, the bigger the distance between the customer, the taxpayer, and the, right. and, and the, and the CEO. And, exactly. Uh, and so if that happened to you, Bernie, in your business, I can't imagine how you run a government with a million employees. You can't. The answer is you don't. I mean, there's well, thousands, tens of thousands of people working in the education of U.S. Department of Education doing what? They're not educating kids. You know, that money, if if there's one thing that I think could be a possible silver lining that comes out of this election, if Trump were to win, would be that the power goes back to the states. Uh, There's been a giant seismic shift, one flash at a time, where power shifted to the centralized bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. Yep. And if you look at what's the most efficient form of government, it's the mayor. 
He's not a partisan. He's not talking about gay marriage and abortion and immigration. You know what he's talking about? Hey, you have a pothole in front of your street? Yep. Crap, we got to fix that. Yep. <laughs> i got to get a business in the town. I'm going to go to that ribbon-cutting ceremony. I'm going to go to that business owner and say, how do I make your job better? You bet. You know, we, deal, we deal with, uh, I think, 14 municipalities, and they're all fabulous because yep. it's the, they know that if I bring jobs to their city, they're going to have more money to do the things that they need to do in that town. The further you get disconnected, county, state, still close because you can make a lot of influence there. But once it goes to Washington, D.C., it's gone. It just goes into a black hole. That's crazy. You know, the central government, if you read a book called The Quartet that talks about our four most important founding fathers, it talks about they envisioned a very, very small centralized government that basically provided for the defense of the country. Yep. And that's it. And that's it. And, and what's interesting is, you know, I was listening to David McCulloch. He was giving a talk on 1776. And towards the end, someone had said something like, hey, what do you think of what's going on in America with like those Tea Party groups and this? And it, there seems to be a lot of dissent in the country. And he goes, well, I can say this because I don't weigh in on anything that hasn't happened within the last 50 years. Historians have to wait 50 years. But our founders, I can promise you this, felt a foreign government ruling over their intimate day-to-day life, and they didn't like it, and so they revolted. And I think now the American citizens, Tea Party, not Tea Party, are feeling like there's this big foreign government, but it's in Washington, D.C. But it's still foreign. The state houses, have they can't print money. They have to hit a budget. The local mayor, oh, my goodness, he just has to get things done. And so I think that that gets to your point, and, and that leads me to this franchise uh, discussion. Um, t- what, what's going on? Uh, with this um, debate and discussion as it relates to the protection of franchise owners. And where are you uh, on this? I think the pendulum, the pendulum uh, uh, has swung too far where uh, dealers have gotten together and influenced politicians too strongly to make it so crippling for manufacturers to be able to operate their brands properly that there needs to be some equilibrium back into the system. Uh, it it, you know, the, the laws should protect and create value for franchises, uh, but it can't be to the point where, like teachers' unions, like police unions, uh, that you can't get rid of the bad ones. Yep. I think the, when that happens and it's too far the other way, it's, it's a problem. Again, you don't want it to be completely... Uh, because that, otherwise you, you lose the value as a franchisee, which the franchise or doesn't want that to happen. Of course. Uh, uh, but the pendulum is definitely swung to it. I'll, I'll give you an example. If Tesla chooses to sell cars in my market on their own and they don't have dealers, God bless them. Now, I'll look at it and say, I want to be right next to that Tesla dealership because what I'm going to do is I'm going to run it as an entrepreneur and I'm going to run circles around that, that enterprise uh, because they're going to have a bunch of uh, disconnected, like we just talked about, people who have no vested interest in what happens in that market. Right. So over time, they won't succeed. But I got to prove that thesis. I, I don't want a law to prove that thesis. Right. Exactly. Right? I got to add value to the chain. So yeah. if Tesla wants to sell cars without dealerships, God bless them, do it. Yeah. My dad it was a superintendent of schools, and he was always leading the charter school movement and the voucher movement. And all the, all the superintendents, why are you doing this? He goes, I want the competition. If a parent wants to leave this school, I want to give them the money and let them go somewhere else. That's that. And they thought he yeah. was crazy, but that's actually what makes for better schools, the same things that make for, well, better soap and better deodorant, for goodness sake. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yep. so I'm all for competition. And, and so you can't, you can't be for free enterprise and competition unless it affects you. Right, right. Exactly <laughs> right. Everybody else, that's great, but not me.
And, right. and thanks for taking that position because too often folks are for, are, are for business, like pro-business. I don't want to be pro-business. I don't want to be anti-business. I want to be for free enterprise, and I want to be for competition because that helps the customer in the end. Um, exactly. Right. And that's the pro-consumer uh, advocacy that, that's best. Final thoughts for folks listening uh, who don't know anything about uh, job creation and don't know about that first day, that day you leveraged everything. Were you terrified? Were you excited? Uh, or both? I joke that there's uh, three emotions that come into play. Total and complete fear, total and complete joy, and total and complete nervousness. <laughs> and uh, you just got to get the mix right. <laughs> and you got to live in that space and just keep marching yeah. forward. You got Yeah, you, got, you can't. Uh, you, uh, listen, you're going to, you know, as uh, Shakespeare said, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. So better to have tried and failed than never to have tried at all. And 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 do you have kids, Bernie? I have four kids. And 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 I assume you you you've taught them and instilled in them the same values that uh, that your folks did. Yeah, that's what we've certainly strived to do. That absolutely. Well, I know I did hear you say you can buy any car you want with your own money. So that oh, that's the same. That sort of was the cue. Well, we appreciate you joining us, uh, Bernie Marino owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest, started with his own money, which was money he saved, started with one dealership that uh, a guy named Penske couldn't get to work, and uh, he got it to work. And it started with uh, millions in sales and is now up to the, and get me if I'm right here, you said, Bernie, a billion in sales now? A billion in sales, yep. That's crazy. Uh, well, we, we look forward to visiting you when we're up in the area, and thanks so much for joining us. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is our American Dreamer series, and it's brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network who are concerned always with the small business becoming a bigger business and trying to fight the impediments that are in the way of that happening. And we heard that voice of Bernie, and my goodness, you want to be on the side of these guys that can change your town and they can change the city, a state. And my goodness, we unleash the spirit of these guys. Thou shalt have fun. Yeah, they say that in Washington. Yeah, thou shalt have fun with our money. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. 